Well, hello and welcome to episode 93 of Table Variation. I'm Walter. I'm Matt. Kyle. Kyle rejoins us fresh off of his fatherhood debut. How's that going, Kyle? Oh, you know, honestly, it's been excellent. We're two months in. We get almost eight hours of sleep a night. Like, we put her down at 10 and we get to about six in the morning, typically. Feeding's going well. Like, honestly, compared to a lot, well, stories I hear from a lot of other parents, uh, the kiddo is doing amazing. Nice. That is what you want to hear, right? Yes, it is. And what you want to experience when you start to get sleep deprived. Nice. Well, this episode is coming to you guys a little early because there is a new expansion of World of Warcraft coming up and I'm going to be sucked into the dark void of the internet for a short amount of time here. But we thought before that happened, we would record one of these, get it out to you guys, and we will be talking about a somewhat topical thing a new magic card that's making waves, whether or not that's a good thing. Power attack, because we should always talk about power attack. And uh, yeah, stuff of that nature. So if that sounds exciting, stick around. This is Table Variation. Cue the music. Well, guys, we're back together again. The trio of Matt. Kyle and Walter. Oh, it feels good to be back. You've had some minor life changes since uh, you've been on before? Only slight. You know, having a kiddo kind of throws a wrench at things. Just just a little bit. We are happy to have you. Everyone's healthy. Everyone's looking forward to their Thanksgiving. Yeah, did my grocery shopping today. Nice. Uh, I'm going to go do that tomorrow. Well, so the topic for this episode came to me in a fever dream. No, um, there's a new set that came out for Magic called Commander Legends. And in this set, there is a card called Jeweled Lotus. And if you are unfamiliar with the game of Magic, you may still be familiar with a card called Black Lotus. It is like the most expensive piece of cardboard on the planet. Uh, at least for Magic it is. Yeah. I don't know. If you had 10 Black Lotuses, you could like put your kid through college or something. Yeah, most definitely. Yeah. They're worth like thousands and thousands of dollars, right? So the company has produced a new card called Jeweled Lotus that is not Black Lotus, but it's so good that were it, you know, zero dollars, was it free to the public, it would be included in like every commander deck. It would be very out of place for you not to run it because it's so good. And it got me thinking, is that a good thing? Like, you sell the game of Commander to people as this, you have a 100 cards to build your own deck, you can, like, chart your own course, divine your own destiny, you get to pick every single one of these cards to make a deck that defines who you are, and you get to express yourself at the table and just have fun, you know, have a good time. But realistically, if you had access to all the cards, you would run Jeweled Lotus, because it's so strong in the game and it goes in every deck, that you really have 99 cards to choose from. And starting from this point, you can ex- you know, expand the argument to include a handful of other staple cards that are in like 90% of commander decks, like Soul Ring, Command Tower, things of that nature. So really, you're not building with 100 cards, you're building with like 95 cards. So then I... I'm now asking the question to you guys, are the existence of cards like this, like good game design? And the corollary to role-playing games would be the ever-talked-about power attack feat. 
It's this feat that like all frontliners take. It's just kind of required to keep up with damage. The fact that that exists, is that good for the game? I think that there are a couple of sort of looking for delineations, maybe, that I would make between those topics. Uh, like, as a, a high-level thought of are things that are, like, objectively more powerful than other things bad or good game design? Um, I think that they are actually good design to a point. Uh, if everything was equal in power, then it would just be boring. Like, but that aside... The difference on like a D&D or a Pathfinder, like you said, the existence of power attack versus the existence of, you know, Jeweled Lotus. The difference is that everyone can get power attack if they want it. Like if you want to play a character that takes power attack, you can. I just as you were talking there, I have actually my commander deck in front of me. So I pulled out like a couple of what I would consider these ubiquitous cards and like you mentioned, like Soul Ring. Okay, well, Soul Ring costs like $2. It comes in every pre-con. Everyone who plays Commander probably has Soul Ring. And then right next to it, I have a Mox Diamond. Now, I think most people who play Commander, if they could, would put a Mox Diamond in their deck. But that card costs $600. Like, the difference between Power Attack and, like, Trip Attack or whatever... Does, there's no difference there other than you need to build your character towards it. Like, I can build my commander deck towards Mox Diamond all day. If I can't afford it, I can't afford it, right? And that's just, like, the nature of the different games. So maybe the first thing to talk about then, the first elephant, right, or the first hurdle is the price of these things. Is it fair to be, like, priced out of power? Yeah, and I think that's one of the biggest complaints with Jeweled Lotus specifically. The card is powerful, I honestly think that like this stack of cards that I have here, you know, Soul Ring, Mana Crypt, Mox Diamond, Chrome Mox, Coalition Relic, Arcane Signet, Grim, like these other artifacts, I think most of them are better than Mox or uh, Jeweled Lotus. The the best question that I heard asked was like, well, if you if if actual factual Black Lotus was not banned in Commander because it is banned in Commander, but if it wasn't, how good would that actually be in your deck? compared to even, you know, like a soul ring. And I think the problem with the jeweled Lotus is that because it's a, a mythic in a smaller print set that with COVID is, I think also make, well, it's a little bit easier to get than some of them, but regardless, it's this like expensive limited release card that like people feel they should be able to get a hold of. It's one thing to say, well, I don't have a mox diamond. That card's 20 years old. Well, well, let me, so let me ask this, Kyle, if you had the ability to run a Jeweled Lotus in every deck, would you? No. God, no. So, uh, first of all, I mean, something like this has so much limitation on it because, first of all, you, have, you can only use it for your commander versus a Black Lotus, you can use it for anything. You know, I think it works better if you have a, um, like, a monocolored or maybe a two-colored commander. But once you start getting up to three or four or five-color commanders, because it only adds one type of color and three of it, some of that can get lost like yeah okay it can offset your tax that kind of thing but it, it's one of your 99 you know so you have to draw it when the timing's right but i think there's gonna be a lot of folks that realize with that card if you don't have it in your opener or the first couple turns it's kind of a dead draw late as the game goes on when you're gonna want to be drawing gas you know something to either sweep the board draw more cards um do something broken and uh, frankly i don't think joe lotus does enough broken things to make yeah. it work so it's, 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 it's like drawing soul ring on turn eight right like 
Right. A late, a late game Sol Ring doesn't do anything, and I think that card is more powerful than Jeweled Lotus. Yeah, because it has a broader application. You know, it goes beyond just your commander, and you have it every turn. Like, there's more upside to having a Soul Ring on turn one than there is a Jeweled Lotus on turn one, frankly. Yeah, and I mean, obviously, you can say that there's going to be certain commanders that are, you know, like if you were talking competitive EDH, which is like a completely different beast. Sure, there's some other stuff you can say there. Is it going to let you, you know, power out some broken commanders on turn one, you know, an extra 2% of the time? Maybe, but like, I think I agree with Kyle there that in the majority of games, it is no better or worse than like that turn. It's worse than turn one salt ring. Okay. So it's not an auto include as I previously hypothesized, but it is powerful. So rather than getting lost in the weeds with jewel Lotus, let's talk about soul ring instead. As you say, it's easily available. And yeah, soul, soul ring, soul ring is that like poster child card for. This card is honestly too powerful and probably should be banned, but literally everyone has it. That's yeah. the exact point I'm trying to make. You aren't yeah. actually, it's not, it's the illusion of choice, right? It's not that you have a hundred cards to build with. You have 99 because you have to use soul ring. Yeah. Yep. And I think though, I think that there are certain other cards that fall into that same category. Just like there's other feats other than power attack that fall into that same category where, yeah, if you don't put them in your, in your deck or you don't take that feat for your character, either you're intentionally gimping your character or gimping your deck and making it worse, or you need to have like a very, very specific reason that you're not doing it. Right. You know, like I'll pick on, I'll pick on like, you know, big you know, talking soul ring here and then transferring it over to D and D one of my commander decks does not play soul ring. And that's a uh, skull briar because for me, soul ring doesn't, do what I need the deck to do because I have to have a black green on turn, ideally turn one, but definitely for turn two to get that thing rolling. The extra but that deck, Kyle, to play devil's advocate, that deck would run black lotus because it gives you colored mana on turn one. But if it doesn't give me exactly what I need, I mean, I could run it, but I run Max Diamond because that actually gets me what I want over the long haul, which is more important to me. Like even mm-hmm. black lotus, I don't even know if I would put black lotus into my Skullbriar deck because it's just so weird i mean it gives you the turn one and like the second casting of skullbriar so you don't run it in skullbriar because of how you've chosen to design the deck much like you can make a fighter that doesn't use power attack but right you are going against the grain right yeah 99 out of 100 players are going to run soul ring in their skullbriar deck well like if if you were a fighter that you built like an archery based build you know and you want to do like oh you'll use deadly aim then which right, is the you're use, version of power attack. Right. You're going to use that version. You'll use power attack for ranged weapons. <laughs> now, the one thing I will be fair as we're talking about power attack is that you have to keep in mind, like, power attack is a gateway feat. A lot of other feats you can't get to unless you have power attack. Do you think, do you think in, like, the D&D universe when, like, the kids are going to high school, they have, like, a level three warrior come in and talk about how, like, you should stay away from power attack because it's a gateway feat and it'll get you into adventuring? <laughs> Yeah, it's called dare. You've got to be careful not to uh, engage with power attack as a young kid. You have to wait till you're like 25 and your brain chemistry is settled a bit. And then maybe you can experiment with power attack in the safety of your own home. Definitely don't do it in public. Yeah, you can't do it in public. Can I also just say power attack? Like just the concept of like I swing harder is just stupid. I mean, like that is also soaring is also stupid. <laughs> like 
it's spend one mana, make two mana. It's just very boring. Yeah, it is. It is. And that's, I think, kind of where this comes down to. Um, so, like, okay, let's look at these, uh, like, seven artifacts that I've just pulled out of my EDH deck here. Um, I got Soul Ring, Chrome Mox, Mox Diamond, Grim Monolith, Mana Crypt, Coalition Relic, and Arcane Signet. Now, the Moxes, these two Moxes, are so much more interesting, I think, than Mana Crypt or Soul Ring because they at least ask you to do something. And Chrome Mox especially because it asks you to exile an actual card from your hand. It's like there's a, there's an actual cost there. I mean, don't get me wrong. The card's very, very powerful and it leads to some broken shit. But like you said, contra- contrast that to like Mana Crypt or Soul Ring. With the, the cost to playing them is non-existent. Right. Yeah. And Power Attack is that... the. As Kyle pointed out, like the power attack is even a larger, I think, offender in that there's so many things like with Pathfinder you cannot do with your character if you don't take it. So now you get into like there are people that'll house rule that you don't have to take power attack to take those other feats, and that like all characters can just power attack for free. I mean, again, all power attack says is that you swing your sword harder. <laughs> I don't know why you yeah. need to be trained on how to do that. But, so then the question is, is it bad game design? Well, I think there's there's a flip side of it you also have to consider is, you know, by putting that one hurdle in place, does it prevent more broken stuff happening later on down the line? You know, like, can a fighter then, okay, if you don't have to take power attack as a feat, you could take, you know, oh, I'm going to take improved critical, and then I'm going to take supreme improved critical, and I'm going to, you know, at much, much earlier levels than is probably within power level. I mean, you can just level gate that shit, but... You know, it at least puts a progression there. Like, oh, I have to get this first. That means I have to minimally be at this level before I can get these feeds. Yeah, they've like, and it kind of it, linked, it lengthens the field out a little bit. More. They've designed they've designed the game around the existence of power attack to the point where even though kind of universally everyone says power attack is terribly designed, we can't remove it because everything is built into it. You know, kind of like the electoral college. If you want to get all political, oh god. You know, like, it's something that they thought was a good idea some time ago, and they put all this framework around it, but now everything's just gone to shit because of it. But you can't get rid of it, because it's how the game works. Like, how would you get rid of Soul Ring and Magic Commander decks now? You can't. They've been printed in the last 30 pre-con Commander decks. You can't just ban Soul Ring. I mean, honestly, someday maybe they could. You have an uproar. Especially on some of the collector versions of, you know, like extended arts and specialized foils of Soul Ring that they've used as like judge promos. As uh, I don't think they've done one as a box topper per se, but like those kinds of promos that people are shelling out all kinds of cash to have a pimped out Soul Ring. But it's like I think you'd have a bigger uproar banning Mana Crypt, which is I think the other real poster boy of the ubiquitous super busted artifacts. Because unlike Soul Ring, Mana Crypt is like over a hundred dollars. Yeah, Mana Crypt is like halfway between soul ring and black lotus in terms of power maybe for like people that don't know magic yeah it's on a similar power level to soul ring but is generally i think accepted to be slightly worse yeah uh slightly worse except in commander probably where it's stronger because the downside to it is you take damage periodically but in commander you start with double your normal life total and that card does not scale up so the drawback is half as potent as it is. Correct. Like that. That is correct. Yeah. For every turn out, you're averaging a damage and a half a turn that you have that thing out. But you could be on the lucky side of that and get a heck of a lot less damage. 
Yeah, and Soul yeah. Ring, sorry, Soul Ring is spend one, get two. This is spend zero, get two. And then Black Lotus is spend zero, get three, but you can only do it once. Yeah. Little auto artifact. So I also think uh, in the context of Commander and Magic that there is more room for these very ubiquitous, like, quote-unquote, broken or poorly designed cards, in specifically with Commander, because you only get to play one, and it's a 100-card deck. When it comes to, like, a 60-card format, that's obviously different, because you can play four of them, and there's just less cards, so the chances that you draw it are much higher. When it comes to, like, a tabletop, you know, like Power Attack, that the problem isn't like, oh, well, Power Attack's terribly designed, and it's very powerful, um, but, you know, I only get access to it, you know, once every five combats. Uh, that's not how feats work. Right. But it is, uh, there is a very similar correlation that we can draw there where, you know, Soul Ring is taking one of the slots out of your deck. So instead of having 100 choices, you have 99. When you make a character, let's say of 10 feats you can pick over its career, you're forced to take power attacks. So really you have nine. That's the direct correlation there. Yes. I think, okay, so I think overall, I personally don't have as big of a problem with there being powerful things that are, yes, Soul Ring is better than this Coalition Relic that I have. That just like, that's fine. I don't have a problem with that. Um, I think generally my problem is, as we, we already saw, like, you know, Kyle has a deck where he, there's a reason he doesn't play Soul Ring. And that's fine. He can do that. But if I wanted to play a fighter who took improved critical, I cannot not have power attack. Mm. Right. It there's, I think in my mind, there's a difference between here's this card that is objectively better than the card you are playing, but you don't have to play it. Whereas in like Pathfinder and D and D, I can be like, here's this feat that is objectively better than the one you want and you have to take it. You are not allowed to not have it. Like you said, there's house rules that allow it, but like as written, I cannot not have power attack. Yeah. And a lot of Pathfinder in D&D is predicated on this idea of prerequisites being fulfilled before you can unlock something. It's very similar to how video game role-playing games progress, where you start out from a base level of power, you make decisions as you level up, and then those decisions unlock more powerful abilities later on. So even to take power attack, you're required to have a base attack bonus of one, and you're required to have a minimum strength score of 13. So before you can even take the thing, you're required to meet these other two requirements. So if you were like, I'm going to make a dexterity-based fighter that's going to go into some other thing and not use strength at all, you're still required to burn some of your strength, your some of your points into strength just to take the power attack that you don't even need to then take the later feats you do want. Right. I mean, look how many... How many like classes in Pathfinder that, like you said, are dex based and things like that, um, have extra rules text in place that allows them to take things like improved critical just to get around power attacks existence? Yeah, that's that's what they've done is they've basically come up with these like legal loopholes that allow them to circumvent this poorly designed system. Yeah, well, like you said, it's it, you know even if you kept power attack as the requisite, the requisites for power attack also pigeonhole you. The requisite for me playing a soul ring in my deck is do I have one and do I want to put it in the yeah, deck? Do you have $2? Yeah, like I think that's kind of where I'm drawing that line is, you know, it exists, that's fine, I don't have to use it, but power attack exists 
that's fine, but I do have to use it, right? Right. Let me ask this then. If we remove the prerequisites from it and we remove the uh, fact that it is a prerequisite for other more powerful things and we just take it as a standalone unit of power attack and you making your character have the choice to take power attack or any other feat, but we know power attack is the correct answer. So your character takes power attack because it's the correct I, answer. So I, I, I dispute this a little bit. I say this from a, a third edition standpoint because power attack was not that great. My understanding of Pathfinder's power attack, yeah, you pretty much have to take it. Um, uh, you know, it really depends on what I want to be doing. You know, it's I, if it wasn't a prereq and I'm just like, you know, really, I want to, you know, build a crit monster. Well, I'm going to go do that first. Maybe I'll come back and get power attack later. But if there's certain flavor things I want to do, I'm going to go that route. Flavor is yeah. different than game power, which if you're doing like Pathfinder League, your um, adventures, whatever, you know, that's different because you have to build some power when you're doing that kind of thing. Yeah, and like you might not take power attack at the start, but like you said, you'll come back to it. So the question I wanted to ask was, are we okay with it existing in that context? If if we imagined it was like a soul ring and it's something that's available for you to take if you want to, but you don't have to, are we more okay with it then? Yeah, fifth edition has that. Yep. Then my question is, why is it all right to have a game that's not balanced with character options? So why is it that, uh, <laughs> you know, something like weapon focus exists, let's say, in a world where power attack exists? Like, why is it you can that's, get a plus one to hit or you can get a, terrible feat. a plus 15 to damage or something, you know, at higher levels? Like, how are those equivalent? They're not. So the question is, why even have the shitty feats? It's a good question that fifth edition answered by saying you shouldn't and they got rid of them. <laughs> are there not shitty feats in fifth edition? There's like 20 feats total. <laughs> the feats are all individually much more powerful, but you also don't just get them all the time. It's kind okay, of the tack replace- that they took. You have to give up your ability score improvement to take a feat. To be fair, replace- most of them still give you something. but Replace feat with character option. Are there character options that exist in 5th edition that you would that never take? So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, so I think actually, so interesting with the the new book that just came out, Tasha's Cauldron of whatever, they took the option basically to make like a variant of any race that you want, and you can basically take and put your stats wherever you want them. So, you know, by default, like a dragonborn, I believe, gets like plus two strength and plus one charisma or something like that. Correct. If you want to play like a variant dragonborn now, the rules state that you can just be like, I don't want my dragonborn to have plus two strength. I want plus two dexterity and plus one intelligence instead. And they, they did that because they were getting a lot of, I won't necessarily say like true complaints, but a lot of players that were saying, you know, how come my dragonborn like can't be intelligent? Like naturally, why does my dragonborn have to be a beefcake and then I have to spend my points making them smart? Okay, well, we'll we'll make it so you can just play whatever the fuck you want. This isn't the real world where like all races are equal under the sun. This is Dungeons and Dragons and dwarves are resistant to poison. I'm sorry. But the counter to that was people who were saying, you know, from my thematic roleplay standpoint, my dwarf isn't hardy. My dwarf is weak, but, you know, he 
He's nimble. He's light on his feet. He doesn't have a constitution bonus. He has a dexterity bonus. I mean, we're getting a little into the weeds, but... Well, I think my my overall point um, that I was going to get to is that I actually think that's stupid. <laughs> because oh, wow. I, I'm in the opposite camp. I think that's great. I think that, as we've talked about on this podcast before, restrictions breed creativity. And that when you're basically allowed to, oh, you know what? Just kind of take up your like ball of mud and shape it however you want. You're good to go. There's no restrictions there. You don't have to be creative. So on my the flip side of it is I feel like so many times we get pigeonholed into certain races because we're playing certain classes because we need to optimize for what we're doing. And so I actually, I love it from two, two standpoints. One, I think it's a good social justice move, first of all, from Wizards of the Coast because they're making a claim that says, oh, this race is better at doing this than this race. And you know, you can go down a social justice rabbit hole with this. But frankly, no, I think any race is capable of doing anything and can be anything. But uh, to address Matt's point, like I, and I'm, I've said this on this podcast before that, yeah, restriction breeds creativity. You know, here's the thing. What it does is it reduces, you know, having it be open like this, it now reduces that, hey, I need to build a power character. I have to now build a story of some race that I'm kind of like, eh, whatever, playing just so I can have, you know, a character that's at power level. Now I can actually say, you know what? This is why I have a dwarf that's not stout, that's not resistant to poison. That's maybe a little bit more of a, I want to say metrosexual and very high charisma and very high dexterity uh, who loves his fine robes, that kind of thing. Like you can make more of a story out of that. So in some ways I think you actually will incite more creativity because you're not limited by your combinations on power. And you now have to come up for a justification as to, well, why would you have a dwarf that's different from the perceived norm? I guess I look at it as the way that character creation already happens in fifth edition. Like you can't go above a 16 it, if you wanted to have your dwarf who has a natural bonus to constitution instead be not nearly as hardy, but you wanted him to be, you know, charisma based, like you could already do that. You could just leave your constitution at an eight and put all your points into charisma with your point by. Like that's a thing that was already, it already existed. And, you know, I, I understand and I do think it played a huge port role and why they did it with the social justice portion and i absolutely don't fault that but from a, a game design standpoint i don't like it i agree with all the things you said however i think that the decision on that should be left to a conversation between the game master and the players if the players say i really have this idea of like a rabid halfling that was like raised by half work so he has orc ferocity and he has a bonus to strength but he's small sized I don't think anyone would have a problem with that, but I don't know what good it serves necessarily codifying all of that into the rules since you already spent like however many hundreds of pages writing rules for these races and how they're all unique and different and have strengths and weaknesses then to come along and say, yeah, but you can just kind of throw it all out. It's like you can throw any of it out. That's the whole point of D&D. Why is there a second book saying to throw out the first book when you could have just not written any of it? Well, you got to also look, there's a huge time difference between book one and where we're at with this book. It's the like, world change, times change. You know, like they're just trying to stay current with where we're at. Well, I think, you know, okay. We can't, we, can't, we can't always lock ourselves into the thing of the past if it's not working. Uh, but Baldur's <laughs> Gate 3 is in beta right now. It uses 5th edition, and you can choose between different kinds of dwarves, but you can never have a dwarf that's as smart as an elf, because dwarves are dumb. 
So it'll be interesting to see if they say. But see, that, the interesting thing, though, is that like in fifth edition, you can have a dwarf that's as smart as an elf, like just out of the core rule book. You can do that. That's not an exact example, Matt. That's that's fair. I just like, I don't know. I, I don't I don't have a problem with it. Like like you said, if the player already wanted that, like there's no issues there. I do think actually so, with based on Tasha's, it's a variant rule that your GM doesn't even have to allow you to take the like, you know, variant bloodline thing or whatever it's called. We right. tie it back to your original conversation. So the idea is that no matter what race you are or what gender you are, you can do everything as equally well. And that's very forward thinking. And that's where we are as a society. And that makes sense. That's like very tangible and real. Do we want a game where all of the options are exactly equal? No, that's boring. We know that. So is that why we're okay with Soul Ring existing? And we're okay with the difference between Soul Ring and all those other cards you listed previously that are just slightly worse versions of Soul Ring because we want to have that one card that's better than all the other cards? It's just like we want to have the Fireball that's just the best spell you can take. To expand this conversation into a different arena, World of Warcraft is coming out with Shadowlands in two days, which is why we're recording this now, because I am going to be hardwired in the Matrix for two weeks and not be available to record. And in Shadowlands, you have to choose one of four covenants. And think of covenant like you've picked your race, you've picked your class, you've picked whether you're like a horde or alliance, and you've reached max level. And now you've negotiated with the denizens of the afterlife, and you get to pick one of four alignments on the alignment access to support and you get benefits from them that are mechanical like it's not like cosmetic like oh you just look cool it's like no this one's going to do 50 damage and this one's going to do 10 damage and it would be fine if it was like soul ring or power attack where you could you know switch to it if you needed or you know i'm making a new character i'll grab power attack the way they've chosen to do it is once you pick a covenant you can change to another one but you can never go back or like, if you go back, it's like wicked, wicked, hard and taxing. So people are really pissed off because what if I pick a really good one, but then it becomes a bad one. So the way they've balanced this, if they've tried to make all of them as even as possible, the result being that in the best case scenario, all, or all four of them are identical. But that's not actually what the community wanted. They just wanted one to be good so that they could pick it. But now that they have like three or four that could be viable for the classes that the three or four of their covenants are viable, the community's really upset because now they don't know what to do. It's like someone said, oh, you guys were pissed off that soul ring existed. Here's three more soul rings. Pick one. And people are like, I don't know which one to pick. It's kind of interesting because originally everyone was upset that there was going to be one that was stronger. So then they made them all the same. And now people are upset that there's not one that's stronger that they can pick. So it's like they want that strong option and they want it to be known so that they can make the most powerful characters possible. Anyway, I, I just thought it was an interesting time. Interesting. I'm actually, a, I guess, I, listening to your scenario there, I'm actually a fan of them being more even. Or if, from a game design standpoint, if you wanted to have an explicitly more powerful one and there was one that was explicitly weaker, I'd say that, like, okay, you know what? It's going to be easier to get the weaker one. You're going to get it faster and you don't have to like grind or, you know, do this or do that. Mm -hmm. Oh, but the hard one, you got the grind wrap. You've got to do this. You got to do that. You know, yeah. Then you should get rewarded with something a little bit more powerful. If you're willing to put the work in work time energy to go get it. Sure. Like I could see doing that kind of balance. Um, but honestly, I would just keep them the same. Like 
it's it's incredible how hard these things are to balance compared to like picking a feat, for example, because when you pick your covenant, it gives you a main ability, a secondary ability, a movement ability, and a whole talent tree. So every single one of those things has to be weighed against all of the others to see if it's actually better. So you might have one ability that's better than another covenant, but that other covenant has two abilities that are better than yours. So that one's actually the better one. for you. So there's a lot of moving pieces. And when they originally announced the system, the main spokesperson for Blizzard said, we're going to make it so complicated that no one's going to be able to solve it. What? People play, people play EVE online for fun. Yeah. Like, and then like yeah, a month there, later. There are theory crafters out there that will crack it eventually. And then people got into the alpha and they solved it. And then they were like, okay, well, we'll just make them all shitty then. <laughs> Problem solved, boys. Let's call it a day. But yeah, so going back to like the Soul Ring or Power Attack thing, my stance for my entire life of gaming has been if everyone is telling me to pick this because it's the best thing, I don't want to do it because it feels like it's lazy game design. If you wanted everyone to have access to power attack, just fucking give them power attack. Why do I have to take the feat? That's dumb. So just like you, Kyle, like I would not put Sol Ring into my commander decks whenever I could. So that's where I'm coming from. But now having seen this interaction, this back and forth with the tides of, you know, the internet raging against the storm of the upcoming expansion in World of Warcraft, I may have flip-flopped and I might appreciate more the soul rings and power attacks of our lives. You know, one of the things I always, uh, but I'm going to go back to magic a little bit. And one of my favorite articles by Mark Rosewater is why do we create bad rares or bad cards? Because sometimes it just makes you appreciate the ones that are great. When you have some bad cards, um, it was part of it that like, yeah, there's and no matter what you do, unless everything is identical to each other, there's always going to be something that's worse and there's always going to be something that's better. Yeah. And if you're playing a game where like everything is identical and everyone starts off on even footing, you are playing checkers, right? Right. Like every piece does the exact same thing and moves in the exact same way. And that game is fun when you're a kid, you like play with your grandpa, but that's not, you know something you're going to play every day of your life, right? Right. There's not, you know, a huge amount of depth you can go into with that. There's a reason there's not like $5 million championship checker tournaments or tic-tac-toe tournaments. Anyway, that's that's about all I had to say on that topic. Anything you guys want to add? <laughs> uh, no, I I don't know. I think their existence isn't necessarily a bad thing. It's just what what do the rules do with them? Well, and, it, and I think the other part of that comes down to is what do you want to do? You know, some people, they want to have every edge, they want to have every power, and they want to be, you know, min-max to the prime or have the most optimized version that they can get of anything. And there are some folks who don't. Some folks maybe prioritize the story or they prioritize, you know, their pocketbook. You know, if we're talking about magic cards, that they're like, ah, you know, it's not worth it to me to spend this kind of money on these things when, you know, a signet will be just fine. You know, so I... I a big part of it is it's an individual choice, you know, and you figure out what it is for you. And, you know, no, don't get me wrong. There are things like FOMO that can play into it a little bit, but ultimately you get to choose what you do with that information and how you want your experience to be. Yeah. And there is choice, but there is at some level, the illusion of choice, right? You can choose something that's not soul ring for that hundredth slot, but you are making the conscious decision to make your deck worse. I'm not doubting that. I'm just saying 
but not everybody wants that. The criteria, I believe, for more powerful is does your deck win more frequently? Is that I, yeah? Okay, that I guess that's objective goal of playing the game of Magic is to win the game. Well, okay, so this will tie into my closing thoughts for like non-related to non-related to our topic necessarily. What so the goal of Magic, as you said, Matt, is to win. I mean, like objectively, that that is the stated purpose is to right. win. <laughs> yeah, so in an example where you have two people playing competitively against one another and they're evenly matched, you would expect someone to win 50% of the time, right? Your goal is to be a better player and win more than 50% of the time, right? Like if you have higher than a 50% win rate, if you're at some tournament, you're doing well. Yes. Well, when you play commander, there are four people. And if we did the same example, all those people being evenly matched, you would expect someone to win 25% of the time. If you set yourself up with the same premise of I'm trying to win more than the base percentage that you know we're assuming I'm going to win, I want to win like 30% of the time. That still means you spend 70% of the time losing. So if you make your goal when you play commander to win 70% of the time, you're not going to win. So you either have to get used to losing or you have to change what your priority going into that game is. Yeah. Yeah. You're not wrong. That but also- you also got to remember, commander is not always necessarily, you know, for a lot of folks, some, it's about that win. For some folks, it's, hey, I, I want to kill an hour with my friends here and dirtle around, do some stuff and kind of whatever. Yeah, that's basically every D&D session ever, right? <laughs> Most of them. I mean, you know, the other, and this is, I think, much more applicable in magic than it is in D&D, but it is still applicable to D&D is like the power level of your group and the table that you're playing at. You know, as I said earlier, you know, like this stupid Mox Diamond that I've got, that's $600. Like that's one card in my deck. There's a plethora of players out there who won't spend anywhere near that on their entire deck, right? So like, should I sit down with these more powerful, more expensive cards? Well, you know, like if my stated goal is to always win, then, you know, maybe I don't go to 30%. Maybe because my deck is just objectively better, I go to 50% at a table of four. D&D doesn't have that same, you can't win, right? The same way. But yeah, maybe if your character is, you know, well, I took power attack and I took this and I took that and you guys took, you know, monkey lunge. Well, maybe my character is now going to hog the spotlight, right? And like it, it comes down to like Kyle was saying, are you the numbers crunchy person at the table? Like that, that's fine. But if the rest of the table isn't, maybe you shouldn't do that sort of thing. Yeah, you got to have that conversation, right? Yeah, and like both games have that. Like there's the the idea in ED, it's like the seventy five percent deck. You build your deck only seventy five percent as powerful as you could. Mm-hmm. You know, and here's the one other thing. Yes, yeah, so, so I have to remember this with EDH. There is a little bit of a course corrector, assuming people are wise to it. But if you have folks that have less powerful decks, if you see somebody start to do powerful stuff, it all of a sudden becomes an archenemy game, and it's three v one. Yeah, that you know, does so while, work. While you add power stuff that increases that percentage above that twenty five, you may still be not really gaining a lot because you have now gotten the political percentage against you. Yeah, and that that's like the social aspect of both games, right? That you know, you can't quant. I can't quantify in the rules. Well, if you, 
you know, play Soul Ring, that means we have to gain, like, you can't, there's no way to rule that. Either the card, you can play it or you can't. That's about it. Mm-hmm. No, it's, uh, it's certainly an interesting topic, right? Yeah, it was a good topic. Anyway, any final thoughts before we move to our, our unrelated topics? No, not no. on this. I think we've talked it through. (laughs) All right. Well, my thing is something that could easily have been Matt's thing, but he hasn't brought it up yet, so I'm going to steal his spotlight. No, my thunder. No, your thunder. It's mine now. So one of the uh, World of Warcraft streamers that I watch posted recently a video of the things he's been doing to pass the time until the next expansion comes out. And one of them is playing this game called Hades that's on Steam. And it's by Matt's favorite studio that made Bastion and Transistor. Yeah, super giant games. And watching his video made me realize that I actually never played Bastion. I downloaded it. It's a crying shame if you've never played it. I downloaded it three hours ago, and I've played it for two and a half hours. (laughs) So It's not a particularly long game. He said it was about... He said it was about eight hours, so I'm going to finish it and then start playing Shadowlands in like 24 hours or whatever. But that's my that's my takeaway is that if you're looking for something to do, Bastion is pretty sweet and it's not that expensive anymore on Steam. So I would highly recommend getting it. It's quite fun. Thank yeah. you for the recommendation. And you haven't played it either? No. Oh, dude, it's oh. sweet. And Transistor, also sweet. Pyre's a little out there. Uh, and yeah, Hades, you can play like a full run of Hades and like under... 20 minutes like Hades is meant to be you you play runs over and over and over again it's like the purpose of that game yeah it's roguelike right yeah where you kind of roll different powers and things and how fast can you go through it no but the game's pretty phenomenal Kyle I would highly recommend it anyway that was my thing who wants to go next my unrelated thing I guess is the Stormlight Archives book four released this past week and uh I've been doing my my best to read through it as quickly as possible, and it is uh, pretty excellent. So, for any of you who like the really like epic high fantasy stuff, uh, give it a go. Who's the author of that? Uh, Brandon Sanderson. So, if anyone oh. out there finished reading the Wheel of Time series, he's the author that finished that out. Uh, if you're someone who's a Game of Thrones fan and uh, you actually want to read new books sometime in your lifetime. Uh, Brandon Sanderson is a machine. He's released four. <laughs> he's released now four books in the series, all of which I think are about a thousand pages on average in 10 years. He's also a huge Magic the Gathering nerd. Yes, he is. <laughs> so you can find his Commander Cube online. He has a full list for it. And there's like videos of him playing online with people, Commander and other Magic games. So he's pretty, he's pretty like tapped into the nerd universe. And somehow still churns out like a thousand pages a month. He he writes a shit ton of books. Yeah, he like didn't he he wrote like a magic novel just so he could put a character in or something. He had an idea, uh, and he approached wizards and was like, "I would like to write this magic novella, you know, set on your world of Innistrad. I will do it for free as long as I retain all creative control. Uh, if you do not let me retain control." Uh, you guys cannot afford my writer's fee, so take it, or, <laughs> take take it or leave it. <laughs> nice, cool, very cool. Well, Kyle, you want to finish huh. this out? Let's see here. Well, I think uh, I'm gonna go have some bath time after this uh, for the kiddo, which is you know a regular occurrence. Um, 
Yeah, what else am I doing? You take home yep. to everyone wash their hands for COVID? Yeah, wash your hands, wear a goddamn <laughs> mask, stay six feet apart from each other, you know, you know, do right by others, that kind of thing. And maybe we'll get through this without needing a vaccination or anything like that. Well, thank you for that, Kyle. What a down- God, I'm such a downer. I will say this much. Fatherhood should not make you cynical. I was already there. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Well, yeah, we'll get this episode out to you guys, hopefully before Thanksgiving, and we'll see you in the next one. See ya. Have a happy Thanksgiving. Thanksgiving. <laughs>